You're listening to the Soul Strategies podcast hosted by the team here at Soul Strategies. We hope you like the latest episode and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Soul Strategies podcast. I'm your host, James Ray at James Gets Political on TikTok. And today we're going to be just dissecting liberal feminism with Tori Ramirez. They're a political activist and educator out of Texas. You can find them on TikTok at the handle at Tori Noodles and on Twitter at Noodles Tori. So, Tori, let's get started. What exactly is liberal feminism? So liberal feminism from a technical, more academic sense is mainly about uh, women getting more electoral representation in the governments, you know, that rule them. Um, you know, it started out in America with the suffragette movement, women, you know, fighting for the right to vote. And that is very important. I think, you know, we do need women to go ahead and have their interests represented in government. So that way there aren't unequal or um, oppressive laws, um, you know, that exist. However, I think liberal feminism means something, I guess, in this sort of broader discussion we have to, um, you know, when it comes to culture, right? I, liberal feminism can be too uh, focused on this thing called choice feminism, which is the assumption, which is the assumption that just because a woman is making a choice or doing something that it is a movement towards women's liberation. Um, and that isn't really necessarily correct. Um, you know, a woman, for example, a woman CEO can go ahead and make a decision that ultimately hurts women by, you know, cutting a ton of women's pay and that doesn't material be- materially benefit them or help them at all. Okay. I mean, that makes sense to me. So what, I, what I'm getting at then is it sounds a little bit more like what we would contemporarily describe as something like, I, like identity politics or, or I guess more so kind of reminiscent of like what I hear a lot is like the idea of like a glass ceiling feminism to where it's like feminism really, really heavily focused on like the, the movements and the decision-making of people that are already fairly close to breaking like that contemporary idea of a glass ceiling. Yeah. I think a lot of people would also consider liberal feminism to be sort of performative activism, right? Where we see sort of um, a good example would be pink washing where we go ahead and like slap a woman on branding, you know, and all of a sudden it's liberating and it means something, but it's symbolic without any substance, really. It's just an excuse. And I guess I kind of want to push back against the use of the word identity politics, um, just because um, identity politics actually have really radical roots. Um, it was originally coined by the Combahee River Collective, which is a group of Black socialist women. Um, and the term was originally meant to mean that the oppressors will be the ones leading their way out of oppression. They will not be asking the oppressor to liberate them because the oppressed um, ultimately know their oppression the best because they're experiencing it. Um, and I guess in a way, you know, the way that identity politics is used now is sort of um, an example of how liberalism has ruined a lot of radical roots. And that's kind of what liberal feminism does with other types of feminism, right? Where it takes this very radical idea and defangs and declaws it. No, I mean, that makes sense too. I, I think I look at other examples of what I would consider liberal feminism to be 
Uh, like we have an idea of like feminist foreign policy making or feminist military activity, uh, which has been catching on, I think, a lot in the global north, particularly Canada and some Scandinavian states, but also kind of this idea of um, a, a decision that may be liberatory in some facet for one person that could even in some ways, like I guess, when looked upon more intersectionally lead to the oppression or the, the stalling of liberation for another group of people. Um, when I look at it, I, I kind of look at military services being something similar to that. I think uh, U.S. trends in marketing, especially with our military uh, services, like our armed forces, have, have really been focused on um, trying to increase recruitment of women through ad campaigns that kind of use, that kind of make it seem like a liberating activity. Um, the idea of playing into a structure contemporarily reserved for men and in becoming more and having more um, women representing our armed forces, um, even though in doing so, you're inadvertently still reinforcing what is an oppressive structure for people abroad. Um, I'm just into how liberal feminism is not just a co-optation and, you know, not always the most useful things when it comes to liberation, but how, how it actually actively harms women. I mean, like to kind of build off of your military example, um, the way the IDF likes to parade its women soldiers um, in order to erase the ethnic cleansing and the illegal illegal occupation of Palestine. Like, I'm pretty sure there being a lot of women soldiers in the IDF isn't in the best interest of Palestinian women who are having their children and families murdered by these soldiers. No, I mean, and that makes total sense to me. I, I, I think I, I'll, I'll ask because I feel like we're going to get into this inevitably anyway. But do you see alternatives in feminist spheres, other um, kinds of feminism, other ways of applying um, kind of maybe another critical framework to a uh, to someone who wants to work for the liberation of women? What would you say alternatives to like liberal or choice feminism would be? So there are a lot of different branches of feminism, you know, there's radical feminism, which some people, you know, aren't really the biggest fan of because it can get into some bioessentialist territory and exclude trans women and just trans people in general. Um, there's socialist feminism, there's anarcho feminism, there's Marxist feminism, but, you know, I, as a Marxist feminist, you know, the sort of branches of feminism that I tend to gravitate towards that I feel are the most effective ones are the ones that incorporate intersectionality, right? But I want to be very specific with what I mean by intersectionality because I feel liberal feminism often uses the term intersectionality to be like, oh, look, we're having women of color here. We're putting them up in positions of power that can still ultimately be against uh, the women's liberation movement. Um, and that's because what a lot of intersectionality by lib when used by liberals fails to consider is a class analysis. They'll use a race analysis or they'll use a gendered analysis, but forget a very uh, important one. And that is the class one. And also, you know, I was about to forget it. And this shows just how important it is a colonial analysis as well. Right. Where to circle back to uh, the IDF um 
example, right? Where if we just look at it through a gendered analysis, you, we can see how, oh yeah, let's support the IDF. They're having more women and that's good because women are getting more opportunities. But once you incorporate that colonial framework and Israel's role in settler colonialism, you realize that it's not actually liberating for all women. Um, you know, when it comes to... Um, Let's see, when it comes to class analysis, uh, and also this gets into an imperial analysis as well, I think I saw this article written about two years ago, I can't remember who wrote it, but it asserted that um, the very abusive factory conditions a lot of women in South Asia face is ultimately good and it's liberating, it's feminism, even though their labor is being exploited. So if you only look at it through a gendered lens, you're like, oh, more women are working, that's good. No, not entirely, because if you also look at it through a class lens, you see that their labor is being exploited. So, you know, when it comes to intersectionality, you can't just look at race and gender. You also have to look at class and colonization slash imperialism. Hey, you're listening to the Soul Strategies Podcast. Take a moment to listen to some of our esteemed champions and their takeaways from the program. It's, it was very important for me to manage uh, time. And the program, again, helped with the discipline of time and helping with the management of time so that... Um, so that you can actually structure yourself to do that what you desire uh, uh, for your races. For more information, head over to soulstrategies.com now. We, well, yeah, and even filtering further than that, I would say even uh, looking at um, like able-bodied people uh, versus like people with disabilities even I think would, would filter in as well. What is, what is inherently liberating to someone without disabilities may not necessarily be liberating to someone um, who has um, some sort of disability of some kind. I think it's important, I guess, to look at as many possible frameworks as possible and overlap exactly. uh, all and, of them. You know, I think when using the term liberating, what may be, what may be liberating for one group may not be liberating for another. You mm -hmm. know, like, let's get even like more specific. If your liberate, liberation, heavy quotations, is at the cost of another people's liberation or freedom, then it is not true liberation. And that is the importance of an intersectional framework, especially when it comes to feminism, is that women's liberation should not come at the expense, oh, uh, a white woman's liberation should not come at the expense of women of color's liberation, trans people's liberation as well. They are all ultimately connected. Well, and I think you saw this too. You you mentioned the uh, the Kambahi, uh, the Kambahi, uh, sorry, the Kambahi River Corrective, uh, Collective. Some of the branches initially with like uh, there's some of the branch off of first wave feminism uh, really starting. Well, I guess less of a branch off and more of a reorientation amongst like uh, initial like white uh, first wave feminists was this kind of reactionary move towards black people getting the right to vote or black men getting the right to vote. This idea that like well. If black men have the right to vote before we do, where do we sit in this kind of network of oppression, I guess? Or, um, I, you might be able to expound more on that than me. Yeah, I mean, that like that is such a good example because the suffragette movement originally was tied to the abolition uh, movement in America. Um, however, it separated, as you mentioned, uh, once black men got the right to vote, uh, because a lot of white women that headed the first wave feminist movement were like, they didn't want to just go, oh, because black men have the right to vote. That means that 
we should also have the right to vote. And not when I say we, white women, black women, and other women as well should have the right to vote. Instead, they took a reactionary stance and went, no, black men can't have the right to vote before we have the right to vote. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, it ultimately alienated a lot of black feminists. Um, you know, uh, one thing that really woke me up was um, the story that Angela Davis tells when she was first labeled as a feminist because of her very foundational text that I think everyone should read, uh, Woman, Race uh, and Class. Um, you know, people started calling her a feminist and her initial reaction to that was, I'm not a feminist. Because to her and to a lot of people, I think now, feminism is this white thing that leaves black women out of the conversation. Um, but of course, you know, as she learned that there were other types of feminism, you know, that she, of course, fit into. And there was also womanism, which mm -hmm. I can't speak on, which because I sadly don't know much about that. But that is a woman's movement that's very particular to black women. Um you know, she was like, oh, yeah, I am a feminism. And, you know, I feel like a lot of working class women do feel that way. Um, I believe in Argentina, you know, I'm, I might be a little bit wrong on this one, but uh, in one of the courses I took in college, um, this he told me about this anecdote of, I think, the second wave feminist that were trying to turn some of these working class women uh, in the factories um, into feminists, right? And instead of talking about issues that were relevant to them, which is their labor is being exploited, um, they have to go ahead and exert labor in the workplace and at home when they are maintaining the household, they instead uh, turned on a film about uh, I don't know how explicit I can get on the podcast, but more about, uh, you know, sexual pleasure, um, about how they can go ahead and, you know, reach completion with their husband. And they're like, I don't really care about that. I care about where my next meal is going to come from. So they end up feeling alienated from feminism and it's harder to build solidarity. It's actually really funny you bring that up. Um, there's, there's kind of this whole, I think Mark Twain noted that history doesn't repeat itself, but rather um, it rhymes frequently. And I, I, a lot of my background uh, with history is kind of centered around revolutionary history and, and, and researching um, different um, historical revolutions, not all of them being like leftist or progressive revolutions, but different, uh, different revolutions historically. And the Bolshevik revolution um, or the, the Russian revolutionary period uh, before really the solidification of the, of the, uh, the Bolsheviks as being a leading force in the Russian Revolution towards the end, um, had a period where a lot of socialist revolutionary thinkers and a lot of these like, young college students decided that they wanted to go out to the people, out to the, um, the, the peasants, the, this, this, like, uh, this, this rural working class. Because there's, there's as you know, in, in a lot of revolutions, specifically socialist revolutions, there's a notable divide between the interests of the urban and, and rural classes, and that kind of distinction can become problematic. So um, for the Bolsheviks, the, the Russians, I won't, I won't get labeled the Bolsheviks, a lot of this was SR-related, um, if I recall correctly, they had this idea of um, liberating the, the peasants, um, and, and, and they had this idea in their heads where if we can go to all of these villages and just like explain um, they're, they're, they're going to know, like, they're going to, they're going to get it. They're going to be on board. Um, completely not like completely missing the fact that like their one worldview, but also their background and, and interests and everything 
was not suited for the communities in which they were going into. And in fact, a lot of them ended up either arrested, beaten, or ran out of the cities they were going into. It was like a, it was considered like a calamitous failure um, in the history of the Russian Revolution. This like going out to the people. It's very, very funny looking back because like with you know with hindsight, everything's 2020. And the, the idea of this like um, educated people with no real background or lived experience with these communities going in and saying, well, like, look at what we can do getting driven out of those communities by what essentially was a developed reactionary force to these people um, is I think really reminiscent of that. I, I think a lot of times when we talk about um, specifically like liberal feminism, as you've described it, we really do miss the, the more global element to it. I think in the United States, um, newer, like what we can temporarily describe as like waves of feminism have become progressively better. And I think have started really building, um, like you said, more of a, a more like integrating labor and colonized analyses becoming more intersectional as we go. Like I think the development of like, of like Marxist feminism or proletarian feminism is really, really important um, in, in like as a step to that process. But I, I, I oftentimes see, um, especially in more liberal circles, uh, this, this idea of inclusion and this idea of um, doing things that are liberating to people in the United States, in the West, um, centering issues that really matter most to um, Americans or, um, or Europeans and Americans or more, more broadly the imperial core. Um, you know, you saw that I think with the suffragette movement, um, th this idea of um, women, when they even passed, passed the, liber the suffragette movement even, this, this idea of liberation of women through integration with work, with, uh, with work outside of the home. Um, which is fundamentally geared towards the liberation of white women as black women at the time already majority like worked out of home. Yes. Um, black women were already working as, um, as daycare uh, people, as, uh, um, as maids, et cetera, as even working within labor, uh, farming, et cetera. And so you already had that element um, at play for people who were not white middle-class women, but the integration of, of white women in the workforce became a massive um, focal point in early in the early feminist movement, especially um, after attaining the right to vote, um, and after kind of the success of the early uh, early suffrage movements, um, it, it became this like um, this focal point that really didn't liberate all women, but rather hyper focused on this one core group. Which I, I guess you could probably dig in deeper and say that they, it requires another analysis of like how race intersects itself with um, with everything. I guess even within a feminist framework, like. Uh, being white still is a, a dynamic that has to be fleshed out. And there's like certain interests and in, in different things and in different levels of privileges, I guess, inherent in being white, even through the lens of being like a woman. Right. And I think that's, that's really, really interesting. But yeah, sorry, that was just a tangent. Oh, no, that, no, that may, no, that's very relevant. Like it's, um, it goes back to, Taking a material analysis, you know, what's happening in the real world, what's happening outside of your head, mm -hmm. rather than just a cultural or governmental analysis. Um, is that a governmental even a word? Governance analysis? I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure. I guess we'll say electoral analysis for now, because, you know, the suffragette movement was very focused on white women get, get, gaining the right to vote. And that was, you know, the big issue versus, you know, not only how black women are already working, don't have the right to vote, but they just don't have the same rights or equal footing. Um, 
because I, this is happening, you know, even though we are getting better now because we are understanding some, you know, class elements, racial elements and colonized elements, um, you know, we still people, we, st- we still see people fall back on it just being a cultural thing and not just a material thing uh, to kind of, uh, you know, circle back to labor. Um, the labor that black women were doing was ultimately kind of what well, was ultimately unpaid and a lot of women do a lot of unpaid labor because women are socialized to do housework to maintain a household you know it, it takes work to go ahead and cook clean and you know just make sure your children don't die. <laughs> and that's unpaid labor what they're doing um mm-hmm. sylvia federici mentions this she's a very prominent marxist feminist um, and that is, you know, that's apparent to white women, but it's even apparent more so to black women who, you know, have to go ahead and do, you know, maybe not very well-paying labor to take care of other people's children and maintain white women's household, but then have to go back and do more unpaid labor, uh, for their own household. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's really interesting to note that, uh, recent estimates coming out of Oxfam International, this was weirdly enough, something I was researching earlier today, um, have said that if women were compensated for unpaid labor uh, globally, you'd probably see about 10.8 to $10.9 trillion, uh, and this is per conservative estimates, of of wealth um, going into the pockets of women worldwide. 1.5, I believe of that, being um, put back in the pockets of American women. Uh, You know, it's important to note that according to the OECD, Men in the United States spend about 150.2 minutes a day, about 17.5 hours a week doing unpaid labor, whereas women will spend about 243.2 minutes a day. Now, this is just in the United States, so it's important to take that into account. There are countries where it's much worse. Um, India ranks particularly bad, uh, for example. Um, But regardless, uh, as a result of this, when you add paid and unpaid work together, women work longer hours than their male counterparts um, by a, a bit. And, to be, and it's important to note that if you're paying women minimum wage in the United States, you're getting that $1.5 uh, trillion figure for like <laughs> wages entering women's pockets. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, as of, let's see, about 2018, showed that the, uh, the average American earns an average of like $26.82 an hour. So if you want to fiddle around with the math a little bit, um, if you were to compensate men and women for um, their unpaid labor uh, at the average wage rate, you end up seeing that men would in, would earn an extra $469.35 a week, and women would end up earning an extra about $761.69 a week, which comes to about a $40,000 a year income, right? So you're essentially working um, what could be considered an extra full-time job yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> for, for nothing, um, which I think is a really, really important dynamic when discussing especially racial 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 particular because with wages particularly there's an intersection of race and gender but more so gender disparities in labor markets and in gender disparities economically overall but yeah just an interesting side note and the way you know where uh there's this argument to go ahead and pay women for housework right Mm -hmm. for their unpaid labor is that it shows the discrepancy and the way like there is more pressure on women to go ahead and maintain households as opposed to men. So having that material manifestation of how much more work it is to be a woman than it is to be a man, you know, will help drive the culture to go ahead and be like, hey, men need to also do more 
housework. They have to go ahead and engage more in maintaining the household. They have mm-hmm. to get engage more in raising children, right? Because they're going to be like, hey, we're not making as much money as women because we're they're working longer hours than us. Um, so that's kind of where, you know, mentioning this fact, uh, pushing for women to be paid for housework would be helpful in women's liberation um, because we would no longer have this pressure on us you know we would be able to really see the discrepancy no yeah and and it's notable too that direct cash infusions don't necessarily have to be the standard we know that some countries that have better social programs regarding childcare specifically um, and other things of that nature uh, do tend to have higher rates of gender parity so uh, so like they're they essentially are less um, how do I put it? They're less unequal, <laughs> um, which is really, really critical. Um, you know, and I think when we're looking at countries like that, uh, like the United States, it's important to note that the lack of programs like paid uh, maternal leave, really paid parental leave, because there is some like secondary, um, el- like problematic elements that just giving women um, time off, uh, it just kind of reinforces economically and establishes societal standard. Well, yeah, it, it enforces the fact that only women are supposed to be the ones raising children. Yes. And, yeah. and you know, you, you, to a degree, have to do both um, because you get countries like I believe Norway um, had a pretty robust parental leave program, but they found that women were still taking a disproportionate amount of parental leave, which was um, still a problem, mm-hmm. right? So they ended up having to mandate essentially like, hey, by the way, like you as a, as a guy, you can't just take off like a month. So, like, you need it to be with your children. Um, but it's an interesting dynamic nonetheless. Um, getting back to proletarian feminism specifically, uh, I think we would start to finish out the show a little bit just for the sake of time. Do you have any literature suggestions for researching more about it? So uh, I mentioned Sylvia Federici earlier and I like, She's more of a Marxist feminist, but of course that intersects with proletarian feminism. Literally anything and everything written by her. Um, a really good short essay, you know, that ties into what we're just talking about um, is Wages Against Housework, again, by Sylvia Federici. Um, you know, if we want to get into an overview of other types of feminism as well, which I think would be helpful in informing people's opinions on proletarian feminism, is going to be Philosophical Trends in the Feminist Movement by Anna Miranda Gandhi. Um, You know, she writes in a very concise and palatable and accessible manner. Um, She is able to cover the many different branches of feminism, teach you about them and give them fair critiques to compare them to proletarian feminism Mm -hmm. in like in less than 150 pages. Um, You can actually find a PDF for it for free on foreignlanguagepress.com. of course, again, mentioned this earlier, Angela Davis's uh, Women, Race, and Class. Um, you know, she gets a little bit into proletarian feminism, again, without forgetting that intersectional framework of how it also, you know, uh, affects her relationship to her race as well. Um, mm-hmm. And then this one isn't particularly feminist, but it still gets into also, like, colonized territory, which again intersects with labor as well, is post-colonial theory by Leela Gandhi is a fantastic work if you want to really strengthen your uh, colonial analysis. Because, you know, as Americans, where we think, you know, we're first in everything and we tend to be very egocentric and self-centered, we forget the colonial framework. So I would highly suggest all of those works because they definitely do push back against the 
um, you know, American self-centric framework that a lot of us are sadly all taught. Makes total sense to me. Well, uh, consider that the end of it then. Uh, Once again, I want to thank Tori Ramirez for coming onto the show. If any of you are interested in their work, you can find them on TikTok with the handle at Tori Noodles or on Twitter at the handle at Noodles Tori. Uh, Thank you again so much. It was a pleasure. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.